Their boys are, if you don't know, likely on the road, probably right this very second, um, traveling back to Fishers from Memphis, Tennessee, where they were visiting some of Ben's family. Um, and so today, this morning, I have the privilege of picking up where we left off uh, last week as we consider preserving the gospel as seen in the book of Galatians. Um, if you are visiting this morning uh, or new-ish, my name is Zach. And I'm the associate pastor here. Ben is our senior minister who just, what I, like I just mentioned, has been out of town uh, with his family. If you don't have a Bible, whether you're a visitor or not, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of, under the seat in front of you. If you are in the front row, I don't need to tell you where to find stuff because you're not a visitor because visitors don't ever sit in the front row. Um, but if you would open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, there will be verses on the screen behind me this morning. Um, but I do think there's a lot of value in having a physical Bible that you use, that you are used to, um, that you're using here regularly at home and elsewhere. But again, this is not the time or the place to really get into that. But as we turn our attention again this week to the book of Galatians, let's remember what we heard preached last week. Galatians is a fiery book. It is sharp and pointed, unlike Ephesians Philippians and Colossians, which all begin with Paul saying how much he loves the people he's writing to, Galatians jumps right into rebuke. Paul's concern isn't a a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's not a misapplication of the gospel. Paul's concern is with an altogether different gospel. And this is why Paul's letter to the Galatians has been referred to as spiritual dynamite. It's charged. It's loaded and and therefore almost impossible to handle without explosions. However, not all explosions are bad explosions. It's easy and obvious to think about dynamite and explosions in terms of destruction, but well-placed dynamite, well-used dynamite carved the faces of Mount Rushmore. Well-used dynamite carved the path through mountains and some of the planet's most rugged terrain to expand our highways and and dynamite and explosives are used to tear down, demolish old, dangerous buildings and put new, better, safer ones in their place. And so my prayer this morning is and has been all week long that I would handle the dynamite of Galatians well be useful in carving away the rocks to reveal a beautiful sculpture or an expanding highway or a new and better and safer building in your soul for the gospel. So let's pray and then we will dig in to Galatians this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for Prairie View Christian Church here on the corner of 141st and Allisonville. Thank you for the people here um, who are faithfully here week in and week out, who are here far more than just Sundays, who are pitching in, um, lending a hand. Um, God, just uh, overwhelmed this morning thinking about how how much work is done by so many people at this church and how, how grateful I am to be serving in a church like this one. So thank you. Um, for that, God, this morning we come together as a church with lots of transitions happening um, throughout our congregation. Many people starting new jobs or, or just, yeah, starting new jobs or looking for new jobs. People um, starting families or trying to start families or just bringing home new additions to families. People moving or having moved. Um, just lots of things going on this morning, God. And so I pray that as we come here and we sit under your word and hear 
your word preached, that it would be a moment of rest, it'd be a moment of confidence, of encouragement, that in the midst of all the things going on, um, you're steadfast, you don't change, and you've got good news for us. Um, be with the preaching of the word, uh, that it's not just me speaking, because if it's just me speaking for 30-ish minutes, um, I, I will have wasted everybody's time, but that you would move by your Holy Spirit through your word um, to the praise of your name and your glory. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Galatians 2, starting in verse 11, picking up where Ben left off. So I'm going to go ahead and and read our text for this morning. It begins, but when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas being Saint the Apostle Peter, that's another name for the Apostle Peter. So when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." I, I really enjoy reading scripture just in big chunks like that, especially when I get the opportunity to preach, because the way it was written was to be heard just like that. And I believe that just like that, the, the Bible is powerful enough to make a difference. But, you know, I'm not going to stand here and not talk about it for the next 25 minutes, so I have more to say. But the, the opening passage in that text, in, in what we looked at this morning, is often cited as a Christian model for confrontation. Um, but this is far from the point that Paul is trying to make there, right? In Galatians 1 and Galatians 2, Paul is defending himself and the gospel message he preached in light of accusations and attacks that were being made against him and his message by false teachers peddling a different gospel. Paul's purpose in Galatians 2, 11 through 14 in confronting Peter, he's not writing that to teach us how we should deal with public controversies on Facebook or Twitter, Paul is making the case, he's showing that the gospel he taught was not from man, but directly from God. And the stream of thought, right, that began flowing in the very first words of the letter, Galatians 1.1, continues here, where Paul introduces himself as an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. The gospel proclaimed by Paul on his missionary journey to Galatia was given to him by God. Now, how do I figure, right, other than I know and I have the rest of the Bible to look at, but how does this letter, these few words, 
you know, when Kephas came to Antioch, I, can, I imposed him to his face. How does that prove or show or why is that claiming that Paul's message was from God? Well, let's consider Kephas, right? Let's think about the man, Peter. Because if you stop and think about the most important and influential figures from the Bible, you will probably arrive at the Sunday school and right answer of Jesus, obviously, right? Jesus is the most influential, important person in the Bible. But if we think about it a little longer, you might name David, you might name Abraham, Moses, you might name Paul because of how much of the New Testament Paul wrote. But chances are, and I know this because I grew up in a church not hearing much about Peter, you probably would not lump Peter into that category of the most important figures, modern Protestants. It's not that we have a problem with him. We just don't really think that much of him. We don't see him as much more than a supporting character to Jesus and then as a teaching stopgap until the Apostle Paul comes on the scene and writes all the letters and the whole New Testament that we get to study. But Peter was and is still a massively influential member of the body of Christ. We may be more likely to think of him walking on water and then promptly falling in or denying Jesus three times or, depending on your sense of humor, you Or if you're even aware of this, you might like to think of Peter as the man who began the very first Christian sermon ever by saying, these people aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. We might think of Peter in those terms, but many, many, many people throughout centuries centuries of church history think of Peter first and foremost as the first pope. And now considering you're here, we are clearly not Roman Catholic. That might not mean much of anything to you. My point in saying all of that is just to say that lots and lots and lots of people for a very long time have had reason to believe that Peter was very, very, very important. And that's because he was. And even if we disagree that Peter was the first pope, which we do, there's no denying his significance and influence from the outset of the Christian church. And this is who Paul confronted. This is Peter. Peter, a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, one of Christ's closest companions while he walked the earth. If Paul was not confident that he had received his message directly from God, he would have had no business challenging Peter. But because he had received his message from the Lord, he was confident to challenge the mistakes he saw being made. So Paul was concerned to show that the message he received then delivered was from God. And this wasn't merely to puff out his chest. It's because he was a good pastor. And he was concerned with encouraging and persuading the Galatians to return to the gospel that he had preached. But that's not all. Because in Paul's confrontation with Peter, he's also showing the the passion, the intensity that he believes the integrity of the gospel must be defended. Paul was willing to step up to arguably the most powerful and prestigious Christian at the time in order to protect the purity of the gospel. Now, as as a brief aside, I mentioned this a bit ago, we absolutely can learn from the way in which Paul publicly challenged Peter. We absolutely can learn from that. If something is done publicly, then it is good for it to be challenged and corrected publicly. Furthermore, we can see that power and prestige, as in the case of Peter, do not make a person immune to failure or criticism. We are wise to confront our leaders by appealing to a power higher than them, namely God himself. And while this is not the point of this part of Galatians, I think it speaks very well into 
our cultural moment and some of the things that are happening in our world right now. But, but to return to the main idea of Galatians so far, Paul is revealing that the gospel he preached, right, I'm going to keep saying this, had been given to him by God and that the integrity of the gospel was not to be compromised. So the gospel, the good news, it's there in Galatians. It's that justification before God is not achieved by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. This is the message he had preached to the Galatians that he was trying to prove, that he was trying to show to them again. I've got a map that I'd like to have up. We don't often really see pictures up here, and I don't tend to use them, but I think maps can help, especially when we start thinking about old places and ancient cities. They they, they can always help me, but it it helps me to see real places um, to, to be able to connect real people, right? These are real people and real places during real history. So Paul along with Barnabas, visited Antioch in Pisidia, which is up there in the region of Galatia. They go from there to Iconium, then to Lystra, then to Derby, and then they circle back through, hit those cities, hit a couple more, and then return home. And the message Paul preaches in, in that first city, Antioch, is recorded in Acts 13. And we're told of the rest of their travels, right? We're told, well, they went from this city after they preached the message there, and then they preached the gospel, and then they preached the gospel again. But it doesn't repeat the the sermon. It doesn't keep telling us what he was actually saying. It just says they preached the gospel, which to me, I think, implies that the message of chapter 13 is the same message, the same gospel that Paul proclaimed in each city he visited. So I'd like to read another large chunk of scripture, Um, and this is from Paul's sermon in Acts 13, beginning in verse 16. So it says, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham... And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, 
as also it is written in the second psalm. We'll skip a couple verses. Keep hanging in there. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I'll skip a couple, another couple verses. And then it says, sermon's over, and it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. That is the gospel message, what Paul preached. He says, look, this, this is it. It's that justification before God and all of the promises that go with it, all of the benefits that go with it, all of the inheritance and blessings and good things that go with justification before God. It's not achieved by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Which means justification, as we see at the end of that that passage there, justification is available not just to the Jews who had the law in the first place, but to Gentiles, right? To all non-Jews who are without the law at all. It's good news. But what does this mean, right? Because justification is a word that we use a lot, I think, as Christians. And if we don't, we probably don't use it as much as we should. And it can become just religious jargon that doesn't mean anything, and so I'm, I've gone, I went to try and great, tried to go to great lengths to make this clear. But justification before God means to be in the right with him. It means that you are in line with him. It means that you are observant of your duties to God and by extension man, God's image. It means you are fitting to him. You fit with God. Justification before God means you are approved by him. And the reason this matters is that God as creator and sustainer of everything reserves a right to do whatever he jolly well pleases. Fortunately, he does not suffer mood swings. And his defining attribute is love. But he still reserves the right to punish those who are in the wrong, those who are out of line, who aren't observant of their duties. And he's promised to do just that. The order, the peace, the harmony, right? These things captured by this biblical word shalom. These were lost at the fall in Eden. But they're going to be restored, meaning an end to all that is not in accord with God's character and design. So in Eden, God told told Adam, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Don't do this or you will die. The inverse of that being, do any of these other things that I haven't forbidden and live. God told Adam, you keep my commandments and I will bless you. Behave this way and you will earn my favor. We know how that worked out. Adam failed. But this mindset is still ingrained in us. Our natural disposition is to work and prove our merit to others to ourselves, and to God most desperately of all. However, our natural disposition is also marred by sin, 
It's tore up and ruined by sin. And because of our sin, proving our merit through works is impossible. No matter how much good we do or how hard we try, we can never fully satisfy God's law because of our sinful nature. We can never be justified. We can never be approved by God in line with his character and his design. At least not apart from faith in Christ. By entrusting your justification, your approval to Jesus Christ, by relying on his works, resting on his accomplishments, and admitting that there is nothing you can add to Christ's work but your own sinfulness and need, you can be justified by God. Not based on works, not based on merit, but grace. And if you read any of the original Christian preaching in the book of Acts like we did, this is what you'll see over and over and over again. Preachers going repeatedly to the Old Testament to show that this was the way it was going to be all along. That God had been pointing to Jesus Christ all along. For example, Psalm 143, 2, and this is one example of many, says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. It's a confession from the psalmist that no one could stand before God's judgment because no one is pure. No one is righteous. This was a Jew living under the law, recognizing even then that they could not be vindicated by obedience because they couldn't obey. And then Jesus comes along, and many of you are aware of this, he raises the stakes. He says, you know, what you thought you were taught, that's not it. It's actually stricter. It's harder than that. It was not merely outward acts that would condemn you. It was your heart. Merely looking with hatred or lust was to commit murder or adultery in your heart, punishable by death from God. But the law was not meant to be a source of righteousness. It had come as a guide, a guardian, Paul will go on to say in the book of Galatians, to show our desperate need for a savior. This is the message that was given by, or given to Paul by God. This is the message he so adamantly defended when Peter fell out of step by refusing to eat with Gentile Christians. There is no law, there is no act, no deed, nothing that can make us approved by God apart from faith in Christ. That is all that you need. By faith in Christ, we are united to him. Our identity is found in him. This is the significance. This is what is being taught in Galatians in in verse 19 and 20, where it says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We have died to the law, crucified with Christ. And that can be a hard thing to wrap our minds around. And admittedly, that's not something I can stand here and say, this is how you think about that. And that's, you know, here's, here's the solution. But we have died to the law, crucified with Christ. Paul draws this point out in more detail in Romans 7, um, where he illustrates that the law, any law, only has authority on the living. It's only got power while you're alive. He explains that a woman has a duty to stay married to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the law binding her to her husband has lost its power. And there are some errors in that uh, analogy comparison that you could poke holes in if you really wanted to. Um, 
but but the point there is the law has power over the living. So likewise, when we have been crucified with Christ, the demands of the law are gone. Not only that, but the law has actually been satisfied. The law, if you keep it, promises life and blessing. But if you break it, and we all have, and we do, and we will, it promises death. But in baptism, we are shown to be buried into the death of Christ and raised to life in him. This is why we baptize by dunking in this tank rather than sprinkling with a bowl. It's a visible sign of a spiritual reality that you have been buried in death with Christ, but raised to walk with newness of life. The through faith that unites us to Christ, we share in his death and are therefore no longer bound to sin, but are alive to God. By faith in Christ, we are united to him. We are in the right. We are in line. We have observed our duties to God to the extent that Christ has, which is perfectly. We are approved. Which means we need to be careful of the expectations we put on other Christians. Part of the problem for the Jewish Christians is that they were very proud to be Jews. So proud that they had a hard time separating themselves from their Jewish identity, which led to them living as though everybody needed to be Jewish to be accepted by God. Now, none of you are proud Jews, as far as I know, um, because none of you are Jewish, as far as I know. But I would guess that most all of you are proud something. And whatever that something is, there's a very good chance that you have a hard time separating your identity from it. Just a couple easy examples. You might be a proud American, and we might have a really hard time separating what it means to be a good American and what it means to live faithfully to the gospel. Or you might be a conservative or progressive or a food snob. Or you might be the kind of person who I, I think is a food slob. You are the opposite of a food snob. You're like, I don't care what I eat, just give me anything. Right? Or you might be a social activist, or you might be a teetotaler. You might be someone who doesn't drink alcohol, doesn't smoke, doesn't do any of those things. All of these things, right, come with this inclination to look down our noses at those outside of our groups. And in effect, even though you might not say this with your mouth, your actions are saying that there's something better about you. But doing this, as Paul puts it, is to build up what you tore down. When you believed the gospel, the starting point was that you had nothing to offer, that you could not meet the law and the law was torn down. Nothing you did was worth anything in the eyes of God. So why, why are you now living? Why do we now live as if, if we have something to boast about? So we need to be careful about the expectations we put on other Christians. But maybe more importantly, be careful about the expectations you put on yourself. If you have been crucified with Christ, you are dead to the law. Don't go back to it to prove how worthy and awesome and worth saving you are because the law already showed you you can't. Thousands of years of history have shown you can't. There's no need. Don't do it because doing so is impossible, it's depressing, it's defeating, and it's an insult to Christ. Attempting to add anything to his work for approval from God is to say that his work is not enough. 
to take a deep breath, myself included, right? Rest. In Christ, you are free to fail. You are free to fail. Because the whole thing isn't riding on you. None of it is. It's not riding on us. Everything that needed to be done for God's approval has been done in Jesus Christ. Which means the pressure is off. In Acts 15, Paul, or Peter rather, in Acts 15, Peter refers to the law as an unbearable yoke. A burden too heavy to carry. Jesus, on the other hand, you might know, tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You don't need to pretend like you've got it all together. You can be a sinner because it's sinners who know that they're sinners that Christ saves. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that is what we are when we are willing to face our sin and admit it. Knowing that Christ is enough to make us acceptable in the sight of God. And what God has pronounced acceptable, let no one call unacceptable. But, but we must be careful not to use the gospel as an excuse to continue in sin. We should not say that because works don't matter, I can, I can live however I want and do whatever I want because it's all done by Jesus. Or if I just keep on sinning, that will show everybody how great God is because he's willing to rescue someone as continually horrible as me. This is not something that is addressed in the passage before us this morning. Right? But it would be pastoral malpractice for me to pretend like this is not a conclusion that many people will, can and will draw when they hear about God's love and grace and mercy in justification by faith. And something that the book of Galatians will go on to explain, but I think it needs to be addressed this morning, at least a little bit as well. So while we no longer look to the law as a source of justification, we don't throw it out altogether. We don't, we don't do that. Romans 7.12 says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Does that sound like something we get to just throw away and ignore and forget all about? See, the law is still useful to us, but we have a much different relationship to it now in Christ. It's no longer a deadly mountain that has claimed any and all who have attempted to climb it. Rather, it's the kind and gracious hand of our loving Father helping us through the woods as we journey home. We join with the psalmist in one, Psalm 119.97 who says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Not because it's the source of approval, of justification by God, but because it's a gracious guide from a loving Father. So we don't reject the law. We don't throw it all away. We don't deteriorate into lawlessness and sinfulness. On the contrary, we uphold the law all the more because in Christ we have known the Father's love to such a great extent. Joshua read from it this morning, but Romans 8, 8.32 backs this up. It says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to give up his own son to save us through his death, why do we think that the law, how, the law somehow is holding us back? That somehow the law is this unloving thing from God who has shown himself to be endlessly, recklessly loving. We think that the law is repressive, but it's not. 
Your sin is and was the problem, not the law. But the law will never be your source of righteousness. You will never be approved by God by following the law. That only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the message Paul received from God. It is the message he delivered to the Galatians. It is the message he defended to Peter. And it is the message that can serve as dynamite to blow, our, blow away our own sinful tendencies. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Um, we gather here every single Sunday to worship you, worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but we, we are especially grateful for your son, that he came and died in our place, that we, by faith in him, could be justified, could be approved, um, could be called your own and inherit the promises and the blessings and all the good things that come with that. That, that gives us hope in this life now as we face um, the different transitions and things that uh, we, we go through, that life will throw at us. I pray that we would be encouraged um, as a congregation, as a church, as individuals, to go out in faith, not to live recklessly, not to live lawlessly or sinfully um, because we aren't justified by, by the law, but to see your great love in what you've done for us in the gospel. And then with new eyes, look to the law and, and realize that it is a helpful, useful thing for us so long as we don't try to save ourselves with it. Be with us this week as we go. Help us to be a light uh, in our various places and places life takes us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.